Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Good morning. Joining me today for Every Day is Earth Day is Julia Battern. She's a teacher at Mankato East High School, and she was selected to go on a trip to Antarctica for a once-in-a-lifetime science expedition. It was with a group called 2041 Foundation, which works to preserve the frozen continent as a natural reserve. Good morning, Julia. Hey, Karen. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to see you. You just got back from the Antarctica, and what an amazing trip. Let's just chat a little bit about how did this all come about? Yeah, so I was, this whole adventure started back in September, middle of September. I remember being in the middle of class and I saw this email pop up in my inbox and it said, it was from our uh, Stacy Wells, our communications director in the school district. It said, uh, all teachers apply for a once in a lifetime opportunity to study in Antarctica, learn about climate change in Antarctica, whatever. And you're a and, biology professor, so it fits right in with what you do. Yeah, biology, wildlife ecology, it's my thing. But the funny thing is, I kind of I just saw that message. I saw the subject line, and I was like, eh, "Okay, it's probably one of those like fake things. Mm. It's not real, whatever." And then uh, <laughs> I got a got a message from a colleague and friend later in the day, and she's like, "Hey, are you gonna apply for that trip?" And I said, "I haven't even opened that email, but uh, sure, I should check that out." And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that oh my gosh, this is right up my alley. It's something I'm super passionate about. And to be honest, I had not given Antarctica really any thought in my life whatsoever up until that point. So, and I think a lot of people are probably in the same boat, right? I mean, one of my students, when I started telling people about this trip early on, I said, yeah, so I'm going to be gone in March. I'm going to Antarctica. And my student said, yeah, I wrote a research paper on that in fourth grade. I said, well, I guarantee right now, you know more about Antarctica than I do. So uh, that's kind of where it all began. And um, the process to, to get selected. So Ultimately, I found out about this opportunity because a very generous energy company called Onward Energy, their national power producer, they decided that they were going to sponsor three people, two of their employees and a teacher from our district to go on this trip. So they chose Mankato School District, I'm guessing, because they just recently purchased the natural gas plant in town. Oh, okay. Interesting. And uh, and they, they also try to do things and give back to the community. And so... That's how I. That's how this trip got on the radar. So I applied. I submitted a video application. It was me. It was a three-minute video of me talking about my passion for environmental education, and in the school forest was the setting for that video. And it was, I guess, met enough requirements, and and I was able to get selected. Lucky enough to get selected. And now Antarctica is the location. The twenty forty one foundation says it works to preserve the frozen continent as a natural reserve. So. 
What did you learn? What are their their aim or what are their purposes as you went about on this trip? Yeah, so a little bit more about the 2041 Foundation. The leader of the 2041 Foundation is a man. His name is Robert Swan. You can Google him. He has an amazing TED Talk, an amazing story. And in the 80s, Robert Swan made a trek to the South Pole. And he's also the first person to walk to both the South Pole and the North Pole is something that he's known for. And when he was in Antarctica, he he noticed that there were some human impacts down there. And actually, he was able to connect with Jacques Cousteau, who kind of inspired him, right? Yeah. Cool. I, like, I'm, I, I was just on a trip with somebody who knows Jacques Cousteau. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. But really. he really inspired him and called him into action to say, hey, use your leadership skills, use your platform. You have this platform, you hike to the poles, you have the story, and inspire other people to prote- protect and preserve our last pristine wilderness on the planet. And so, you know, one thing that Robert Swan knows deep down, and I think I definitely sense this as an educator, environmental educator as well, is if you want people to take care of a place, to actually go out of their way and take action to protect a natural place, you need to take them there and you need to show them the beauty and help them to understand that ecosystem. And then they might get a vested interest and, and do something about it. And I think he knows that inherently. And so he essentially, we were the 20th group to go on this trip. He's been doing this for 20 years. This trip actually was supposed to happen in 2019 and it got postponed and postponed and postponed. And so some of the people on this trip with me have been fundraising and planning on this for over three years. I just found out about it in September. And so to meet those people that have been, wow, three years in the making. So I would say the mission is to establish this network. I think over the cumulative number of people that have gone on the 2041 trips to Antarctica is around 4,000. So, and it's people from all over the world. Just on our trip alone, where 36 different countries were represented, just a handful of us from the United States and people from all around the world, India, the UK, Singapore, Brazil, Canada. I mean, just every continent was represented on this trip. And were there other educators besides you? Actually, in public school educators, there were three of us that work in schools. Okay. There are a couple of people that are working to develop curriculum that aren't affiliated with public schools necessarily, but no, it was just a handful of teachers. So I think people were really interested in an understanding of who I am, just introducing myself as a science teacher. There's kind of a sense of relief, like, oh, I, I get you. I know what you do. <laughs> okay. Uh, you work with teenagers. Oh, okay. Oh, bless um, your heart. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess going back to the 2041 Foundation, I mean, Robert Swan even said, he said in... It's called the 2041 Foundation for a reason. We should probably talk about that. So one of the things that I had no idea about before this is Antarctica is protected by a treaty. And in the 1940s, there was a lot uh, of countries that were making an effort to establish a presence down in, in Antarctica mostly through research stations at that point. But there were also countries that were looking into maybe doing military or nuclear testing and using it as as a place for that. And it's actually really impressive and maybe one of the best things that globally has happened that that countries came together. They said, we're going to take a year and study and figure this out. And they actually decided we're going to sign a treaty and protect this space. And when you think about coming together as a world to protect an entire continent, it it's it gives me hope (laughs) that that we can do things. So what does that treaty say? Like you can't mine there, you can't do anything there, or what? What is it exactly? What is it doing for the area? Exactly, exactly. So essentially, the treaty 
it preserves Antarctica as a space for peace and science, and that's it. There are really strict laws on tourism. There's a ban on nuclear testing on any military activity. And yeah, essentially, it, it as I said, peace and science. And currently, there are between 1,000 and 4,000 scientists or people that temporarily live on research um, stations down there and that's that's allowed by the treaty but that's that's it and then tourism ecotourism is growing essentially that's what we did we are we were ecotourists we definitely weren't just we were learning a lot mm-hmm. and I think a lot of good action will come from it but so give us yeah. a sense of how big is this area of Antarctica and how few people there are because you know when I think of it I don't think of it as really being habitable yeah so Antarctica is, they say it's about two Australias, or I think the size of the United States and Mexico combined, fifth largest continent. And I mean, when we were there, there you really could sense, I, I would say, the isolation. So there was, I would say, the moment in time where I really realized where I was. So we were out on a Zodiac tour. So just a little bit of background information we essentially lived on a ship. It was like a small cruise ship. And so that's where we ate our meals. We slept on the ship. But every day we would have an opportunity to go on these Zodiac cruises and landings. So Zodiac boats are, imagine, almost look like rafts. They're little black kind of inflatable boats and you can fit about 10 people and a driver on them. So not very big. No, they're small. So the ship has eight of them. Okay. And so every day we would go down these Zodiac cruises and one day... We were going out to a kind of a faraway island to look at a different species of penguin that we hadn't seen yet, the chinstrap penguins, right? Because everybody wants to see the penguins. And one thing I learned about Antarctica is that the weather can change on a dime. So we were out there, waters were smooth, it was sunny, and then really quick, just in a matter of a few minutes, the winds picked up. And so we're far away from the ship, we couldn't see it anymore. And all of a sudden we have these pretty big waves, oh, no. maybe seven, eight foot waves. I mean, by the shore, they, were, they felt really big being in that Zodiac boat. And there was actually a point where I was thinking, okay, I'm probably going to fall in the water. <laughs> I was fully prepared in my mind. I said, okay, when I fall in the water, the waves are going to push me into that sea ice over there. That could get really bad. And I realized, gosh, if I if that happens, first of all, we can't even see the ship. And if we could see the ship, we're so far away from anyone that could help. And that was a moment in time and we made it back fine. It was just very exciting and we were all soaking wet and cold. But that was, it was, that was the most exciting moment of the trip for me, but also a moment where I realized, I think, really where I was on the planet and how far removed from other human activity we were. Well, so there's really no city there. Isn't it just some science experimental stations or something? Just some mm-hmm. huts or I don't know how you describe that. Yeah. So there are dozens. I want to say there's around 40. I could be wrong on that. Research stations set up. Some of them operate year round. Okay. I know um, one of the U.S. stations does operate year round. There are people there that live there all year. Some of them are only operating in the summer months, which means for them, they just wrapped up their summer season. Okay. And yeah, those essentially, the ones that we saw, none of them were being used. We went by a couple of them and yeah, just imagine a few, a few buildings. A lot of them had, were painted kind of a rusty red color that really popped out in the black and white landscaping and uh, definitely nothing, nothing fancy, (laughs) but uh, Well, so you essentially lived on the boat. It's not like you could go to a hotel on shore. (laughs) No, no, we were, yep, we, we lived on the ship. The ship was our home for about 10 days. 
talk about your, I guess, your thoughts before you left and your impressions once you came back in terms of going to a place like Antarctica that unless you go there, you wouldn't experience. I mean, I would say, you know, before going there, of course, I'm watching some videos mm-hmm. and seeing some footage. And I, so I had some ideas of what it might be like. But some of the things that I noticed when I got there, just some more the scale, first of all, like you can see videos of mountains, but until you're actually, your ship is moving through this valley of mountains that are just super tall, covered in ice, um, it just didn't have a sense of what that scale was like. Another, a couple of other things that I remember, just the colors. So... I was really, really intrigued by the colors of Antarctica. And actually, it's not a very colorful place in a way. When you go there, a lot of the rock is like really dark brown. And then there's this really beautiful contrast between the bright white snow and ice on top of that. So you have this very black and white landscape. The water's kind of a grayish color. But then you'll see these beautiful, beautiful blues. So older ice turns blue. And so on land in the cracks, you'll see this like indigo pop out. Some of the icebergs turn this really bright blue color. And so you have this black and white landscape with these blues popping out at you. And then maybe the orange of a of a gentoo penguin's beak and feet. And so you do have these little hints of color that just really pop. And, and I thought that part of the landscape was absolutely gorgeous. And the sounds, I, I'll remember the sounds. So I mean, being on the ship, it was noisy and we were around each other a lot. So, but once we were able to get out on those Zodiac boats, get away from the ship, get out on land and just listen, listen to the sea ice crackling and kind of bumping into each other. You could hear some of the ice shifting in the, in the far away, you knew it was happening far away. It sounded kind of like thunder. When it was really calm, you could hear whales. There were so many whales. We got really lucky and we were in a few bays where where you could look out and see whales like all the time and you could hear them puffing their air out and and making some of the noises and so just the sounds of Antarctica and being disconnected from getting removed from the light pollution the noise pollution the wi-fi how was the sky I mean I picture if if, is it dark there so you can see the night skies really clearly or was it or do they have light all Mm -hmm. hours of the day or yeah so for for Antarctica I suppose it would be when we're having our winter solstice it's for them that's our darkest day is going to be that day for them where it's 24 hours of light we got there when they were just ending their summer and fall so actually um it felt kind of like here right now there was about i don't know 12 12 hours of full daylight and then still a dark night we actually we were traveling there as a low pressure system was moving through so we actually had a lot of precipitation and a lot of clouds so we I think there was one night and I missed it. Oh, I think no. I went to bed. <laughs> I should have stayed up past midnight that night. I missed some of the clear skies, but they were, some people were saying that the stars were really beautiful. Really and to, again, when you're so removed, when you're removed from that light pollution, you can just really see it out yeah. there. I, I didn't get to see the stars. I saw it was very cloudy when we were there, actually. All right. So this group is with the 2041 Foundation. Mm-hmm. Did they talk about how the landscape has changed over the years because of climate change? Uh, talking about ice melt and that sort of thing. Was that something that they described and how maybe X years ago it would have looked so different? Yeah, definitely. There were there's some anecdotal evidence and uh, hearing stories just even from Robert Swan 
And um, one of his colleagues, who was our safety officer, his name is, we call him Jumper. It's his nickname, Adrian Cross. This is his real name. They've been to Antarctica over 40 times collectively. I said, I actually asked Jumper, I said, is there something that you saw on this trip that you've never seen before? And at first he said, no, no, I've seen it all before. And then he paused. And actually about a full minute later, he came back and he said, actually, wait, it rained. He said, I've never seen it rain in Antarctica before. I've seen it snow, but I've never seen it rain. And he said, that's different. Like, that's not, that's different. And then, yeah, I mean, when we were there, a uh, big part of an ice shelf in Antarctica fell off. And you, you hear about those stories, right? Yeah. Even in Ushuaia, so not in Antarctica, but the southernmost city in Argentina, we, while we were there, we hiked up a glacier called the So Marshall you went from glacier. Antarctica to Argentina as a part of the trip or? Yeah, we actually spent a significant amount of time, four full days in Ushuaia, Argentina. Oh, okay. And that's where we... That's where the port was, where we got on the ship, and then that's where we were dropped off after the trip. Yeah, so we actually spent um, a few nights there. And Ushuaia, I, <laughs> okay, look, we will, people will understand this. I, it almost reminded me of the Duluth of Argentina okay. in a way, a port city, yeah. kind of on the side of a hill, cooler climate. And um, where was I going with this? Oh, okay, but we're in the mountains, right? We're in Patagonia. There's a glacier there called the Marshall Glacier, and scientists have been measuring it, and they've noticed that the glacier is actually receding, and they actually they anticipate by the year 2100, close to the end of the century, it might be gone completely. Right now, that's the primary source of fresh water for the city. And so, you, you know, we talk about adaptation to climate change. Obviously, we want to do what we can to slow the rates of warming. That's the first goal. But we also need to think about adaptations to some of those changes. So the city, right, a population of, uh, I need to double check on this, maybe 100,000 people. They're going to have to figure out a different way of getting fresh water if they're not getting that glacial runoff every year. Just So that was, I mean, not Antarctica, but close, mm-hmm. uh, where we're seeing some of those changes. How about the wildlife? You know, a part of you teach wildlife ecology mm-hmm. at East High School, and it sounds like you saw a lot of different things from penguins to seals and things like that. Were there changes? Do they talk about changes because of climate in those populations? Yes, that was, I made a list of my the, the best things that I learned. And one of the best things that I learned down there was this really interesting and important connection between climate and that food web, right? And like you mentioned, people think of Antarctica, they think about whales, they definitely think about penguins. Right. Everyone asks me about the penguins. <laughs> yes, and, they are, and yes, they are super cute and we saw lots of them. And <laughs> they are, penguins are fun. Um, and seals, right? The megafauna gets a lot of attention. What I learned is in order for the the whales, the seals, the penguins that um, to do well, they all depend heavily on krill as a food source. And so I'm going to take a minute and tell you all about krill. Yeah, it's really <laughs> They're like shrimp. Is that what they are? Or is this yep. type of shrimp? Or? You can think about shrimp and that's a pretty safe way of thinking about okay. krill. Yep. They're a crustacean. They're found, this type is found in the Southern Ocean, right? That water that circles Antarctica. Um, and so, so the Southern krill essentially are foundational in that food chain. Uh, most of the seals, the penguins, the whales, a primary part of their diet is krill. And what I learned about krill, they can actually live for several years. And in that first year of life, they depend heavily on phytoplankton, which are primary producers. They can photosynthesize, right, um, and get energy from the sun, make sugar, kind of start, kick off the food chain in the Southern Ocean and in Antarctica. And so the phytoplankton grow on the underside of sea ice, 
They okay. said it's almost like a magic. So could you see it or not even? Um, well, actually, we, we did see some sea ice that had phytoplankton growing on the underside of it, yes. Okay. But to really see it, you'd have to be in the water. Oh. They said it's almost, imagine like an upside down prairie. <laughs> you got okay. these, these primary producers growing on the underside. And so in order to ha- have the phytoplankton growth, you need sea ice. Sure. And in order to get that sea ice, it needs to be cold. So there's this connection between um, the amount of sea ice, the amount of phytoplankton that can be produced, and then the amount of krill then that feeds on that phytoplankton. And so if things are warming and we see reductions in sea ice, then that's going to have an impact on krill and a bottom-up effect on the rest of the food chain. And so we think about, well, why why do people care about climate? And I think, you know, if you care about preserving that biodiversity and you appreciate the beauty and respect the survival of some of those megafauna species that get all the attention then we need to also be keeping it cold because really their their way of life and their food source depends on the cold. So what did you take back with you to your class for your students in terms of the science part of it? You teach biology and you teach wildlife ecology. Are there lessons learned that you say, ha, this is going to be now part of my curriculum? Yeah, absolutely. What we just um, talked about with the mm-hmm. krill and the food webs and the food chains, definitely. I think that's a great way to learn about energy levels and also just a really important connection between uh, climate and a food web, right? And how that, how food webs, a whole food web could be affected by warming temperatures. So I think that's one of the big ideas that I'd like to take back and actually embed in our curriculum. And then a bigger idea that I'm taking away and, and we'll find a way to integrate is just this idea of global connectedness and um, there's that classic quote that, I don't know, about how one thing in the universe, you find that it's hitched to every other thing in the universe, right? And and I think that that idea became really apparent on this trip that my actions here in Minnesota um, can actually be affecting Antarctica, right? Every time I'm um, burning fossil fuels, if I'm driving my car or if I'm flipping on my lights and those lights are powered by a coal burning plant or whatever, I'm fossil fuels are going into the atmosphere, contributing to that warming. That warming is impacting the entire planet and especially those polar regions. And then that can come back and actually impact us, right? We Another thing we learned a little bit about were um, was the ocean conveyor belt and how our ocean currents and the circulation that essentially are, really influence a lot of our weather patterns, those are powered by temperature differences and salinity differences. And in order for those to continue as usual, um, we need to have cold water at the poles. And uh, and if that starts to warm up, that could have an impact on even our, our global ocean currents. And so, you know, as humans, we love boundaries. We love categories because I think it helps us to understand the world. We like to draw political lines. Um, we like to label our oceans, but really we're all just part of this one big system. And and one of the takeaways for me, even though I'm a very, very tiny, tiny, insignificant part of that system, my actions can actually have a, a huge impact over time. And so finding ways for our students to also see their place in this bigger system and forget about some of those lines and boundaries and just see that that connectedness is a huge idea. Well, the, the fact that you talked about earlier, the treaty and the the, the that it's that a, a pa- place of peace that's going to be preserved. I mean, that is huge in itself. And why can't we all just get along in all those other areas? <laughs> it probably makes you wonder. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, the fact that that treaty was signed gives me hope. I also, I'm really curious. I think 
you know, what are you going to be doing in 19 years? How old am I going to be in 19 years uh, when it comes time in 2041 to revisit that treaty? I think a lot's going to happen in the next two decades globally, right? Our population is going to continue to go. Hopefully, we're at a better point in our energy transition and and on track for, for some of those climate goals of keeping our warming below two degrees um, Celsius. I don't know. I It gets me also thinking a lot about the future and thinking about all of the different scenarios. I think that was one of the best conversations we had on the trip is kind of the best case climate scenario and the worst case climate scenarios and everything in between. And I guess I'm, I'm curious to see where we're at. I'm also optimistic. I think there's definitely a growing level of concern and interest in figuring out solutions and taking action now. You know, you work with a population of high school students and, and you're a lot younger than, mm-hmm. than I am. And so it makes me feel hopeful that if we have teachers like you bringing such things back to the classroom and trying to inspire those students, do you feel that today's young people in your high school are concerned about their climate, the change, the earth and that sort of thing? You know, I, I think that a lot, a lot of us maybe for years have ignored it and mm-hmm. maybe it's coming back around just that we're seeing these changes. Yeah. Oh, man, I could talk about this for a long time. I mean, so just thinking about how how much our world has changed in the last few decades. I mean, my parents have seen the world population double during their lifetime. And then thinking about rates of consumption. I mean, there's more people on the planet. We're consuming more than ever. Me and my fellow Americans are the worst <laughs> um, as far as that goes. Um we have the I should say have the largest footprints of, of just about anybody. Um, anyway, what I'm trying to say is um, our world is changing really quick, and I think that there's a lag time between those changes and then having our educational systems keep up with that. And I think we're realizing that right now. I definitely even in the last so I've been teaching for 11 years, and in my first couple of years of teaching, I. F- Maybe this is just my perspective, but it was a pretty normal activity to have students debate climate change, like oh, that it was, okay. is this really happening? I, I feel like that was an activity that was happening in schools. Now the conversation is, okay, this is definitely happening. Let's learn about the science behind it and solutions. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I definitely, and again, even in the last 10 years, there's a growing sense, sense of urgency. Students know that that we need to do things differently and that we need to live more sustainably. I think what's missing is that scientific understanding and then a really empowering them with solutions. And one one thing I'm really, really excited about, the Minnesota adopted new science standards in 2019. I don't know anything about those. Sure. So, so have you heard of the next generation science standards at all? So there was a national effort that started Um, I think they came out in 2013 is when the next generation science standards were actually published or really close to that. And over the last um, 10 years or so, states have essentially adopted them. Minnesota um, basically adopted the next gen science standards, but put their own little Minnesota twist on it. But basically it's it's the NGSS standards. And I, I love these standards because they place a huge emphasis on understanding of earth systems and sustainability and our previous standards I think left that out and earth science was almost more of an election elective opportunity some students were getting that um, but if they chose to and now I think we're going to see 
that becoming a part of all of the required curriculum for all of the students. And here in Mankato, we're actually um, rewriting our science courses right now at the high school level. We have, we're putting in an earth science course that all students are going to take. And then even our biology, our chemistry, our physics classes are going to have um, some more interdisciplinary topics tying in that earth science, tying in that environmental sustainability piece into um, learning about the food web or <laughs> learning about um, water quality in their chemistry class, for example. So I'm um, really excited to see, I think, our education leaders and our curriculum is starting to catch up to those changes um, because it's definitely time. Everybody needs to be eco-literate and not only understand the science, but then understand the solutions and, and how they can take action. We are talking with Julia Batter, a teacher from Mankato East High School who teaches biology and wildlife ecology, just got back from the Antarctic in an expedition with the 2041 Foundation, which works to preserve the frozen continent as a natural reserve. It sounds like it's had a great influence on you, and you're going to be able to take a lot of these ideas back to the classroom. And it's just great to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Any final words before I let you go, Julia? Yes, final words. (laughs) Uh, I would say I'm definitely feeling inspired to share the good news and my Antarctica stories. I think one of the things I'm taking away is actually one of the best things we can do for Antarctica right now is to take care of our own backyards. And as much as we're gonna tell, I'm gonna tell stories and show photos of this beautiful Antarctic ecosystem, I'm also really excited to help our community reconnect to nature and the natural world around them. And I think that there's as, as much beauty in Antarctica and the mountains and the whales. I think we have just as much beauty around here. I mean, just take a paddle down the Blue Earth River and you'll see it. Go find, I know they're very fragmented, but go find a natural prairie planting and just sit in it and you'll realize it's not just this field of grass, but there are hundreds of species that are living there. Go for a walk through Rasmussen Woods and you'll see the owl staring at you and it's like the coolest feeling ever. It's like it's like how I felt when I was with the whales, right? It just So... Not everyone's going to have a chance to go to Antarctica. I was super lucky to have that opportunity, but everyone has a chance to connect with their own backyards. And so I think if if we can do that on a global scale, everybody takes care of their own backyards, everybody finds themselves as as good stewards of that space, then I think the world's going to be in a much better place. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Julia Battern. Thanks, Karen. It was great to be here. Thank you. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where you are part owner. Member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by Lee Pomeroy. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.